Mark chapter 1. This is the last time we'll be in, the ch- in chapter 1 of Mark, 14 through 34. We've been um, saying that Mark's gospel was written not just to give information about Jesus and the details surrounding his life. It's a mistake to think of it as primarily that. But it was written to introduce us or introduce the reader to Jesus himself. Who is Jesus is what we're asking. What's he like? What are the things he loves? What are the things he hates? What's his temperament? What would it be like to be in a room with Jesus? What would that be like to feel his kind of presence and affect? What would that be like to be in, um, to be in the presence of being himself, the God-man, Jesus? And um, there are a few places in the Bible, I think that I will say, there are a few places in the Bible that give a more fruitful answer than this passage. There's a lot that we can learn about Jesus, him, from this passage alone. So there's, I'm going to highlight, we're going to go through it, and I'm going to highlight six things that we can learn about Jesus this morning. Six things that we can find in this text. One is, he's unique. He's special. He proclaimed himself to be someone special, unique, someone that we've all been waiting for, something, someone that our hearts instinctually long for, kind of like a, a missing piece of a puzzle, all the longings, all the desires, all the things that we've been looking for, when Jesus walks in the room, we go, oh, he says, it's, you've actually been longing for me. He's someone special. Secondly, he carries an air of authority, doesn't he? In both word and deed. He's an authoritative person. He's in charge. He takes control. He walks into a room, captain's, captain's on board, okay? Thirdly, he's a bit demanding, we're going to see. He's demanding. Um, He demands something of us. You can't encounter Jesus without something being different afterwards. There's a choice that's to be made. He's also tender and compassionate, though. He's tender, he's gentle, he's compassionate. Fifth, he's he's the great leader. Follow me. He knows where he's going. He knows where he's going. He's got an agenda. He's got a plan. Follow me. You know, I think of the, I don't remember a movie particularly, but all the action movies where the hero says, if you want to live, follow me, (laughs) you know. But he's also, we're going to find finally, he's the great follower also. He's also the great follower. So let's march through these. Number one, he's unique. He's one of a kind. He's special. He's who we're all really longing for. This is verse 14. He says, now after, it says, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. In other words, the time that you've been waiting for, what you've been longing for, what you instinctively know should be happening, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The reason I want to highlight this again, we talked about this last week, the reason I want to highlight it again is because this is the first words that came out of his mouth according to the Gospel of Mark. The first words are always very important, kind of inaugural words. They, they you know, literarily, we talked a lot about the literary style of the Bible and how uh, New Testament writers and Old Testament writers will arrange their material in such a way as to give you a certain impression. Out of all the things that Mark could have chosen as the first words to come out of Jesus' mouth, out of all the things that Jesus said, Mark chose this. Out of his mouth, he says, the time is fulfilled. So here this figure, Jesus, comes onto the scene, and the first thing he says is, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. What you've been looking for. In other words, you've been wanting a kingdom. You've been wanting a king. Why can he say that the kingdom of God is near? Well, because he has come. That's why he can say it. He's proclaiming that he is the king of this kingdom that you and I have been longing for and that the people have been longing for. And this is, we can trace this. I want to tr- tell you the Jewish aspect of this, but I also want to get a little philosophical with you this morning. And, re- and I want to argue that you yourself are longing for a king. In fact, I want to argue that an anthropological part of being a human being is the need, the want to crown someone. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Um, 
But this is a big theme, especially in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You are going to see them talking over and over and over again about the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. In fact, if you want to sum up the theme of Jesus' ministry according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it is kingdom, king. Um, One famous scholar says theirs is the story of how God became king. If you want to know what the Gospels are about, someone says, what are the Gospels about? This scholar would say, the story of how God became king. The biggest theme. In the Bible, the kingdom refers to, if you want a broad and accurate definition of kingdom, the word kingdom, the kingdom refers to the healing, renewing exercise of God's ruling power. That's a great definition, I think. The healing, renewing exercise of God's ruling power. And this is what the Jewish people for sure were expecting and yearning for. Um, Ancient prophecies, especially in the book of Isaiah, have proclaimed that the world is in such a mess and in such trouble that only God himself can come and make it better. He's the only hope. God himself has got to come and make it better. The prophets go on to say that there will be a special and unique king from the line of David who will come and he will put the world right. There will be a king from the line of David. He will end all war, according to the ancient uh, prophecies. He'll end poverty. He'll end suffering once and for all. He will make the world Eden again. And that's what they're expecting. He'll restore uh, Israel and he'll reign from Israel and from Jerusalem as capital city, the world will become an Eden again, completely unified and at peace and in harmony once more. Jeremiah and Ezekiel go even further than a political kingdom, and they talk about the, the effects that this kingdom will have in the human heart. They say that God will enter into, when this king comes, this person comes, God will enter into a new relationship with the human soul, the human heart, a new covenant that will finally deal with the evil going on inside of us. Not just the externals, but the internals. He will, you know, you've got these famous passages that says God will circumcise the flesh of our heart. He will remove the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. So we're talking about a new kingdom, not just a political kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom. That's why scholars call it theopolitical. It's a spiritual kingdom that has ramifications on the world, on society itself. And then from an even larger viewpoint, just to get the whole story involved, here we'll dive a little bit into, the, into what's going on with you and me. If we go back to Genesis, everything was paradise in the beginning. There was no war. There was no division. There was no abuse. There was no disease. No one was wearing masks. In fact, no one was wearing anything. And it was okay. <laughs> they were naked and, and they were unashamed. Everything was paradise. And you want to know why? According to the Bible, because God was in charge. He was completely in charge. And that's why everything was working the way it ought to work. The relationships with him, our relationships with ourselves, our relationships with each other. We're all in perfect sync, in perfect harmony because they were centered around the one relationship that we were all really made for, our relationship with the king. He ruled and he was in charge. But then part of that kingdom us, we said, no, 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 we want to be in charge now. We're going to rule ourselves. We're going to become autonomous, independent. We're going to make our own decisions and build our own kingdoms. This is, this is why a lot of scholars find, it, well, and it's, it's just true, in the Bible you'll find the idea of two kingdoms, two cities running parallel, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. This war goes in between. It started in the garden when Adam and Eve said, nope, We'll be in charge of this one, thank you very much. We'll make our own decision, thank you very much. They fell for the great lie. We can do this ourselves. And from that, everything, everything skewed, everything tweaked, everything was twisted. Our relationship with God obviously fell out, became disjointed. Our, psychologically, the Bible would say, our relationship, our relationship with ourselves became disjointed. What is identity? Who am I? What's going on? I feel lost within myself. All of those things became disjointed. Our relationship with others because of that became disjointed. War broke out. We were naked, but now we were ashamed. They realized that they were naked in Genesis chapter 2. 
They realized that, or excuse me, chapter 3, they realized that they were naked and they were felt, for the first, they were always naked, but then they realized it and they felt shame for it. For the first time in history, we were now controlling information that we knew about each other. The makings of Facebook and social media started back there. I'll put my best foot forward. I'll control the information about myself. I'm putting on a fig leaf. I'm hiding, projecting everything out of whack at this point. Wars and even the physical world, diseases. Domino, 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 masks. (laughs) Here we are. Here we are. Therefore, when Jesus shows up and he says, the kingdom of God is near, he means that that what you're really longing for is here. I am here. I'm what you're really longing for in, in, in every human heart. We all have a need. In fact, I will say this. We all have crowned someones or someone, something. Someone is in charge. There's someone to whom you are saying you will make it all better. We live in a, a, a world that is, especially in our culture, this, this should not be hard for us to identify, especially in the American culture, uh, where we live in a world of, of entrenched celebrityism, where we make, we make people gods and goddesses. People that are important, people that we want to follow, whether they be political figures or actors, musicians, uh, business, business leaders, they become the kings and queens, the prince and princesses of our, of our generation and our generations, and we seek to follow them. We have, a, we can't help it, we have a propensity to bow before a throne. And yet, and here I will argue, well, this theme will run through this whole um, section of scripture that we're in, um, who we worship will either, who we worship and who we crown will either distort us or heal us. Jesus shows up at this point and he says, behold, the kingdom is here. And what he's saying is, the more the world will begin to put themselves under a new rule, the more, more hearts are under the rule of Christ, the more things will begin to heal. That's it. We are all on kind of a spectrum. For those of you that are Christians, some of you um, are, are on further along the, the spectrum of others. But when we start... What we're doing is we're putting ourselves under the rule of somebody. Now, we may not understand what that even actually means, but we we do it genuinely, and we start on a journey at that point, a journey toward healing and health. And things start begin healing. Our identity begins to heal. Our relationship with ourselves begins to heal. Our relationship with others begins to heal. Usually what gets us in is the realization that our relationship with God has been completely restored and healed because of Jesus. Nothing separates me from God anymore. I can come before him. That's the beginning point. And then as those things begin to play out in our lives, we begin to heal more and more. I love the analogy of someone getting married. Uh, A lot of you can remember the day that you got married and you made all of these promises that no doubt you had no clue really what you were saying. I promise to this and that in sickness and in health and you know, for richer or for poorer, for better or for worse. And you made it genuinely. In a certain level, you made it with all your heart. It was a genuine commitment. And there was a second in which you were not married. And then the next second, you were. I do. I pronounce you man and wife. You're married. And now, there's a whole lifetime involved of actually figuring out what that means and living it out. We go through the better and the worse, the richer and the poorer. And in the middle of that, we go, oh, okay, the better or for worse, ah, okay. And we're being sanctified. We're growing into our identity. I'm a married person and I'm growing into what that actually means. You know how it is. It's one thing to know something. It's another thing to know something. Have you ever, with your spouse or with somebody, you're about to make a really big decision and you think to yourself, okay, let's count the cost in this. We, we need to be wise about this. So let's count it out. And you sit down together and you make a leisure of the pros and the cons and you think it out. And after you've weighed it out on paper, you think to yourself, okay, I think we got a good handle on this. It's risky. It's fraught with danger either way, but let's pull the trigger and let's go forward. We've thought it through. And then a year into it, and now you know 
It's nothing you didn't know before. You had it on paper, you figured it out, but now you're feeling it. Now I know what it means. Christianity is a lot like that. A lot like that. Okay, I know the basic doctrines. I know who Jesus is. I know that he's God. I know that he loves me. I'm going to do this, and I know that I love him. But then a journey takes place. And hearts begin to change. And the more and more that he reveals to us on this journey of other areas that are not under his lordship, the more we begin to submit and sacrifice and return to the altar and live a life of repentance over and over and over again, the more things begin to heal. But it's a messy thing, isn't it? You can raise your hand or you're not. Those Christians that have been walking with Jesus for a while, it's not clean and tidy, is it? It's pretty messy. Yeah? Amen? Some of you are like, oh, I guess so. Well, you're awesome. Fine, you're the awesome ones. But for the rest of us whose feet are still on the ground, it is a messy, messy business. And we love him more. It's what Augustine meant when he said, to have found you but still be looking for you is the soul's paradox of love. I found you, I've arrived, and yet here we go on a journey. There's a great book that I've just started reading to Noble called Hind's Feet in High Places. Wonderful book. And it talks about, it's an allegory, which is a lie that tells the truth. It's about this woman named Much Afraid, living in the Valley of, Sor- or the valley of Humiliation, in the town of Much Trembling. And she works for the great shepherd. Her family, are, they're called the Fearsomes. She's got this cousin named Craven Fear, and her family are going to, they're going to force her to marry Craven Fear because they hate, the good, they hate the great shepherd and they don't want her working. So she goes to the shepherd and she says, what do I do? And he says, let me take you away. Let me get you out of here. Let me take you to the high places. The problem with that is, the high, she lives in a valley, the high places are these mountain, and it's the, it's the kingdom of love, the kingdom of his father. The problem is, there's a lot of problems here. One is, much afraid is very crippled. She has legs that don't work. And she's got a face that's contorted. She has a crooked smile. And the great shepherd tells her, I'd love to take you, but the thing is, no cripples can be in my kingdom. And no, I, I have to, and no distortion is allowed there. You have to let me transform you. I'm going to give you new feet, much afraid. I'm going to give you Heinz feet that can skip on the mountains. And I'm going to, but it starts with a seed. I'm going to put love in your heart, the seed of love. And he pulls it out, and it's this thorn. <laughs> you remember that? And she's like, oh my gosh, you know, she's much afraid of pain. And he says, yeah, love and pain go together, he says. But so does sweetness and so does grace. And he sticks this seed into her heart. And, she begin, and is she there immediately? No, she begins a journey. She begins a long journey. Some of, some of the journey that doesn't make sense. It's counterintuitive. He leaves her at some points. While, well, leaves her. She thinks he leaves her while she's crippled. She has to go it alone. But as soon as she calls on the great shepherd, he's there. And it's this beautiful story. Everyone should read it. I really think everyone should read it. It's wonderful. But it's about this journey of her discovering more of herself and the more of herself that she discovers from this blossoming seed of love coming out of her. All these other things are being discovered and she's submitting it to to the great shepherd and he's taking it away, pruning it, and making her and transforming her into a person that can handle the high altitudes of the kingdom of love, the kingdom of of the good shepherd's father. It's beautiful. That's the journey that we're on and it starts by saying, okay, I want to be a part of your kingdom more today. So it's an event and a process. That's my point. Those of you that have been Christians for a while, there's more of his kingdom that you can put yourself under today. Promise. Promise you. There's more. What would the Spirit be saying to you today? And you can start. Here's how you find out. You're longing for a kingdom. What are you tempted to crown? 
There's a starting. That, that's how you'll usually know. Because Jesus shows up and says, you know what you're longing for right there? I'm here. You're actually longing for me. I will fulfill that in you. Okay, things begin to change, and they always will, and it's from the inside out. Now, last week, I just want to, I want to, actually, I want to point something out here, because it's important and it's in the scripture. Notice that he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Others of your translations will say that the kingdom of God is drawing near, is drawn near. That's the NIV version. And this is what I want to point out to you. It's the nature of the, the, the realm that we live in. We live in a place, um, we live in between the already and the not yet. So your healing on, in this life will only at best be partial. And you need to know that up front. Jesus' kingdom and Jesus' ministry, even Jesus on the cross, is an inaugural kingdom. Do you understand that? It means it's starting something that's... Um, so, here's something. When you hear preachers, people of my order, say, God has won the war. He's won the battle. Have you heard that? God has won the war. He's won the battle. Actually, no, he is not. Do you know that? I know you're giving me quizzical looks, but it's true. Here's the, the more accurate way of saying it. God will win the war, but at this point, he's won the decisive battle that will win the war. In other words, the war, us winning, is inevitable, but we're still in the middle of the war. A great analogy for this that I heard someone say is is, um, D-Day in Normandy. That was the decisive battle that won the war. Even though the war went on five, six years after that, historians now say that at that point, mathematically speaking, Hitler was done. When we took the beaches of Normandy with our allied forces, Hitler was done. At that point, it was a done deal. And yet, there was still, there was still fighting for years and years and years for finally that to take an effect. That's a really great, accurate way to describe Jesus' ministry and the cross. He won the decisive victory in the cross and in the resurrection. But that means we live in between the already, the inaugural, I'm here, the kingdom of God, but it's near. We're still in the not yet part. So people wonder, how come I'm not healed? How come all this stuff keeps happening? How come I keep struggling with sin? How come all of these, these types of things? Well, it's the nature of where we're, at, where we're at. It will happen. But listen, this is not heaven. Most Christians that I talk to that are disillusioned with this earth is because they're expecting it to be heaven. It's not this is a war zone that we're in right now. It's a war zone. And what we're longing for, the heaven that we're longing for is yet to come, and yet it's also been inaugurated. It's here. He says, I'm here. It's starting now. My reigning rule is beginning, and it's inevitable. It will win. Get on the bus. It's starting now, and you're beginning a journey. So, in, so what does that mean for you? I just want to get practical with you. That means, and I want to be real with you because I feel like I have a, well, I feel like I do, have a, I have a duty to be honest with you. Your life ahead of you when you leave these doors, you came here with a series of bumps and bruises, ups and downs, goods and bads. That is going to be more of the same when you leave. Okay? There will be suffering. There will be hardship. There will also be healing. There will also be progress. There will also be grace. There will also be love. There will also be harmony. There will be healed relationships, all of those things. But there will also, maybe to get there, things need to get worse before they get better. That's the nature that we're in. You know, in a war, it's, it's, it's messy, isn't it? When somebody throws a, a, a grenade into a room, we all might be affected in different ways, but we're all affected. Even if no shrapnel hits you, you've got trauma. Some lost an arm. Some, we're all in that. That's where we're at as a, a human race. We're all limping. The, the frag went off and we all got nailed in some way or another. And the more that we bring ourselves into the kingdom of Jesus, the more those things will heal. Now, here's what I want to say. It's a progressive kingdom, meaning that it will continue to grow and culminate and grow and harvest until 
Jesus until the final resurrection when we're in heaven. It's designed to keep growing based on our participation. In other words, the more that we yield our hearts, our souls to the kingdom of God as he brings up more and more things, the more that will begin to heal you and heal society more and more and more. We talked about last week the political ramifications, and I want to I say and just dig a little deeper on that and point out a feature that this kingdom works from the inside out as opposed to other po- purely political kingdoms that work from the outside in. A political kingdom of all, I mean, whether it's Democrat or Republican or Socialist or, or whatever you want, they are going to change external things. They're going to write new laws. They're going to pass new rules. They're going to do all, they're going to uh, dump more resources into different places and shift them around and cut other things. And they're going to, basically, they're tweaking with all these external things to try to manage, uh, to try to manage man's behavior. The gospel works the complete opposite the gospel starts in the heart it's a theopolitical it starts in your heart and the more your desires begin to change the more your heart is given over to Jesus the more of his kingdom uh, is ruling and reigning in your life it's going to change the things you want it's going to change the way you buy it's going to change the economy one great example of this is is uh, one great case study is in the book of Acts when the gospel affected the, the city of Ephesus you remember that Paul had been preaching and teaching for two years in the city of Ephesus. All from Asia, they came to the city of Ephesus to hear what, and all of a sudden, their hearts began to change. And their natural interests, from the inside out, they weren't interested in the temple of Diana anymore, of Artemis anymore. They didn't want to go to her gift shops anymore. They were now coming because of Jesus, and they came to hear about the Lord. And the economy started to collapse on that part of the, it just had natural ramifications to the point where, they realized, okay, Paul and his cronies are, are, are stopping our business. And it put the silversmiths out of work. The unions made a riot. They pulled Paul and his, and his people in front of the whole town and they, and they accused him. They tried to get him out of there. Why? Because the society, the economy was being affected, but it started within people's hearts. Paul did not go around saying, don't worship Uh, Artemis don't worship Diana he didn't pick it he didn't try to write new law he didn't start from external he started from the heart the kingdom works from the inside out hearts change which means values change which means interests change values mean new societal and cultural values new laws new policies and so forth and it works its way out in that way that's why um, the church is to preach the gospel We don't, I won't, use this pulpit to derail or promote some political party. The Christianity is political, but it's not partisan. So we will preach the gospel because we're going for the heart, you see. The gospel will go for the heart. And that will naturally begin to change things. The more you decide... And I decide to put more and more of our hearts under the lordship of Christ the more we keep repenting. We do have a part to play. We've got our hand on the throttle a little bit. So when the Spirit brings things up to you and me and we resist, we're also resisting some of our growth, some of our healing, see? Because we're not quite convinced yet that the the crowning of that king is better than the crowning of this king. We're still going to hold on to it. The reason we hold on to things is not to shame anybody. It's to show a reason. The reason you're worshiping what you're worshiping, the reason you won't let go of the grip that you've got is because you're still convinced that that is your savior. So of course you're not going to let it go. So something's got to replace your, Jesus has got to replace your, um, you need a a greater beauty. You need to be convinced in the imagination of your mind that Jesus is better. And that's something the Spirit does with your cooperation through repentance. And when that happens, things begin to start to grow and to roll from there. Okay, I got to move on because that was just point one, you guys. My goodness. He carries authority in both word and deed. Jesus is in charge. He walks into the room. He's got control. Look at his authority in word. Look at verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching 
And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, not with the scribes. Let's start with his authority in word and what he spoke. He had great authority, and it was noted by everybody that heard him teach. What did, what, he has authority. What did it mean for them to say that? They could have picked any word in their brain to, to, to uh, encapsulate what they were experiencing. And they said, man, the guy is so authoritative. Well, they defined authority by comparing it to the lack thereof in the scribes. That gives us a great clue. This is super important. When the scribes spoke, what did they say? The scribes would say, it is written, right? In other words, they appealed to a greater authority than themselves, and rightfully so. I'm doing that this morning. I come to you and I say, it is written in the Bible. I, don't, I dare not come to you and say, here's what I think. Here's what I say. So the scribes are doing a good job here. They're doing, they're, they know their place. Same with the prophets of old, the prophets that, the, that Israel really loved and, and adhered to. What did the prophets say when they spoke? Thus, thus says the Lord, they would say, right? So they're appealing to authority greater than themselves. But Jesus didn't come and say those things. Here's what made him different. We have record of him saying, you've heard it say this, but what does he say? But I say to you. In other words, he takes authority. I say this to you. You've heard it said this. Here's the common wisdom of the day. But I say to you. I'm taking authority for this because he could. In fact, it was in line of who he is. Other places we have him saying, um, verily, verily. Have you heard that? Uh, the better translation in the Greek is, well, it is the Greek. Amen and amen. And um, if you know what he's, if you understand the culture in that time, he was in a synagogue. And in a synagogue, the elders of that synagogue would sit in the front row. And whoever would speak and read the scroll, they would speak and they would comment. And it was up the, to the elders of that synagogue to verify what that person was saying by saying, at the end of when that person was speaking, the elders in the front would say, amen and amen. In other words, they're saying, we as the authority of this church, of this synagogue, approve that what that guy just said is in congruence with the laws of Moses and the teachings of the Old Testament. And the church depended on their eldership sitting in the front to know, should we ingest this or should we not? Is this good stuff or is it not? Jesus and they said it at the end. Jesus shows up and says it in the beginning. He says, truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you. In other words, I don't need you people. He is a troublemaker. He says, I don't need you people. I don't need the elders. I'll take authority myself, thank you very much. Truly, truly, I say this to you. He's given authority. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's saying, I come with my own authority. I, in fact, I am authority itself. This is why Christians believe in the authority of the, of the words of Jesus as recorded in the New Testament. We submit to this authority even when it seems to go against the latest trends and so-called wisdom of our culture. And it feels very counterintuitive for us. But we're submitting ourselves. And when we don't, when we don't, so when people come to me and when Christians come to me or anybody comes to me and says, look, I love Jesus and I love what he said about this and I love what he said about that, but I can't follow him here, 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 and here. There's, a, there's, there's some ontological misunderstandings about who Jesus is, see. To say that we have, to be arrogant enough to say that we can decide. Here's where Je Jesus claimed to be God in the flesh. He, that's indisputable. So either he is, and he knows everything, or he's not, right? So when someone comes to me, even Christians that come to me and say, I'm just, you know, I just don't believe everything that, that Jesus said, what they're basically saying is, I respect Jesus, I think he's a great leader, I think all of these other things, but I, he's, he cannot be who he said he was. I'm not worshiping him as God. See, Christians, we, we come and we submit ourselves to a body of truth, to the words of our Lord, and we submit to that even blindly at times when it seems to go against what the wisdom of our culture says. Why? Because it, it's where our allegiance lies. We're in the kingdom of God under another king. And we also know through history that worldly wisdom and man's wisdom comes and goes. It, 
It's to, we discover things and then we discredit things. And we usually, and you know, I will say that I think our time and place in this culture has probably got to be one of the most arrogant times of place in, in, and I mean this truly, in history. We have people that sit as judge, assuming that in the West we have a higher point of view and we can see 2020 unlike anyone else ever before. And in the name of science and based on science, which science in its, science is great, but you understand science in its very uh, philosophy of science is to limit its scope of seeing things. You understand that? Science is to get rid of all other things and focus on laser beam on one thing or two things. That's what an experiment is. You're, you're, and you, you, you hypothesize based on that. Science is, it, in fact, it, the exact reason why science is so effective is that it limits itself. It doesn't take in all the information. It limits itself to a limited amount of information and, and, and makes observations from there. The very success of it is based on it limiting itself, you see. And yet, we have now made science an ideological term in our culture that means we can, from science, we can tell that there is no God. <laughs> Which is just basically a, a miscategorization of what science and God actually are. It'd be, like, it'd be like saying, I can tell that there is no author, I can tell that there is no Shakespeare by analyzing Hamlet. Because in Hamlet, I don't see Shakespeare anywhere. There's no, from all of his characters, from the plot, I cannot, there is no person named Shakespeare anywhere. Right? We're limiting to that within that sphere. Shakespeare's the author. He's outside of his own story. And from him, the story is emanating. From him, there's a power that's going out that's making the story. But you can't tell from that method, from inside the story. You're not going to be able to tell if there's an author named Shakespeare. Science is a miscategorization. It's great. We've made extreme advances because it's limited. Absolutely. It's amazing. The empirical method has done a lot for us. But to say that it can, it, it's even a, a proper tool to answer the question of God or not is a miscategorization and, a, and using the wrong tool for, the wrong, for, the, for another job. See, the only way that Shakespeare, the only way that Shakespeare, or the only way that, the, that Hamlet and the crew in that story can know that there's a Shakespeare is if the author chooses to reveal himself to Hamlet, to those characters. The only way is if there's a revelation, is if the author reveals. And that's what's happened. That's what Christianity claims. And as a matter of fact, that's what um, almost all of the great classical theistic re uh, religions believe. They believe that God has to reveal himself. They, might, they disagree on what that God is and all of those things, but they believe in a in a reality on which all the particulars of reality are, of our reality, quote unquote, are fastened. All the contingents, all the things that are passing away, all the conditional things must be locked on to, a, to an unconditional, uncontingent reality that is self-sustaining. They all agree on that. And the only way we're going to know is if he reveals or, they, or she reveals themselves to us. Science is the, is the wrong tool to answer that question. Simple as that. Um, Jesus comes and says, it's me that you're looking for. I'm revealing myself to you, and here's what I say. We believe Jesus is God. Okay, but he's also authority indeed. Look at verse 23. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know, who, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. This is also very hard for us modern people to understand, the idea, because we've been raised in a, in a society that has done away with supernatural things. Again, it's exactly what I was talking about uh, when we base, when we use science as an ideological framework of how we look at reality, we, we, we've explained away all supernatural. 
And so now we don't really think about those types of things. And yet the Bible and other, other religions, major religions, are incredibly supernatural. They record things like this. And, you know, I would, I would argue that the idea of a personal being of evil is a, much more, is a much better explanation of this world and what we see going on in this world than what our modern uh, philosophers are telling us today. Uh, we talked about this last week. Modernity, will, will, they will um, reduce the problems of this world to sociological or scientific things, economic types of things, which is part of it. Absolutely. That's definitely a thing. But the Bible would say behind all of those systems, behind all of those real realities, there's a greater reality. There, are, there is a war going on in the heavens. There are real spiritual forces that are at work behind the ills that we see in our society, uh, that we see in Seattle. And that's just, you can't come to the Bible without noticing those things. And um, post the Enlightenment, post, especially the 1800s, the, the, the years of progress, great optimism in our society. Man can do anything. You know, we're, you know, and on 1800s and on, you know, the light bulb, electricity, we're sending folks to the moon. I mean, all of these things are happening. There's great, great optimism in our culture at that time of what we can do. Why, why do we need to believe in demonic stuff or spiritual stuff when we can light up a room when I can touch my watch and lights turn on? or my house locks, or my car starts, or whatever it might be. So we've, we've weeded out any kind of supernatural, and that's come into our reading of the Bible. It's hard to find churches outside of the charismatic Pentecostal extremes. It's hard to find churches that teach the Bible soundly that will point out the supernatural that we're dealing with in life, according to the Bible. How does it work? I have to explain it to you. How do... Are there demons, evil spirits at work uh, in our society, in our families, in our personal lives, and so forth? And the answer is, it's complicated. <laughs> it's complicated. According to the Bible, a, de- a demonic presence cannot inhabit a believer. That's probably the simple baseline that we can, that we can start with, okay? Uh, there's no... There's no teaching that we have from the apostles on how to deliver a believer from a demonic presence. There's no, uh, there's no record that we have in the Bible of a believer being in, filled with a demonic presence. But we are influenced, and you'll see this, this runs through a certain theme. We are influenced. You are being influenced to a degree by demonic presences in your life every day. They can, inf- they can lie to you. They can influence you. They can make you think certain things that are not true, and so on and so forth. And the battleground that this lies is your loves. Demons, according to the Bible, play on our idols the way a guitarist plays on the strings of a guitar. One great example of this is in Ephesians, where it says, do not let the sun go down on your anger, um, you know, but take care of it, basically, because if you don't, you're giving the devil a foothold. That's the idea there. In other words, and it's not just talking about anger. This, this applies to anything. That when you, when you entertain certain things, when you give in to certain things, you're giving something evil more room, more room around you to, to, to mess with you. And demonic oppression, or, or excuse me, demonic, um, uh, what am I thinking of? When you're possessed, possession, thank you. Ugh. Demonic possession is simply the most extreme form of what we're all dealing with, according to the Bible. Demonic possession is the most extreme form. This is why Jesus demands what he does. Uh, um, he demands complete sovereignty over your life. The more, we're going on the same theme, the more we have other kingdoms, the more we're giving a foothold to the devil. And yes, it is not just your anger. It is not just lust. It is not just those things. It's not less than those things. Those things are in it too. But it's not just those things. The dynamics in your home, the dynamics before your marriage, you need to understand 
they, we, they have a demonic element to it or a spiritual element to it. Here's the thing. We don't want to get um, superstitious, but we also don't want to be substitious. Both of those extremes will get us into trouble. If everything's a demon, you're going to get into trouble. But if nothing is a demon, there's no, you're, you're also going to reduce the problems in your life. You'll go to a class and you might make some progress, but that won't be all of it. Here's how it works. The more you put your career over your family, over God, the more your family will be neglected. It owns a piece of you. Your life will be ran down. You'll get tired. Maybe you'll, eat mal, you'll, you'll be malnourished. You won't eat right. All of those types of things. There's more and more and more ground going on. And the more that thing or that person or those people own you, you're obsessed with them. You have to say yes. You have no boundaries. You, you, you can't say no. You'll choose them or it over your own safety and peace and love. All of those things. The most You keep going down that road. The most extreme form of that, if you're not a believer, is possession. At some point, it, you lose control. That's how it works. If you're a Christian, you've got the Holy Spirit inside of you. You, you, you're, you, you belong to the kingdom of God, but there's, there's, you're on the scale of oppression, especially if you're forgetting those things. So how do we, how do we combat this in our lives? There is, a, there is a presence, there is spiritual things going on right now. How do we combat this in our lives? Well, it goes into the third thing that we can find about Jesus. Look at He's demanding he has authority, but he's demanding. Look at verse 16. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. Listen, they were fishermen. What is that? That's a career. That's how they make their money. That's how they make their livelihood. They're fishermen. And immediately, they left their nets and followed him, demanding. In other words, they gave exclusive rights to Jesus. Look, it goes on. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, and they were in their bo boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father, that's family, they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. What we're dealing with here is, and what Augustine is talking about, Augustine would say the problem with mankind is a disordering of all of our loves. That's what St. Augustine would say. The problem with every human heart is a, a misprioritization of your loves. They're out of whack. They're out of order. And he would, Augustine would go on to say, the more you put, the more Jesus is in front, the more that he takes exclusivity above everything else, you give him that blank check, uh, check the more those other things will fall into their rightful place. And they'll become useful for what they just are. Money will become just money. A career will become just a career. Your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your spouse, they're just your spouse. You love them, but they're not king. They're not crowned anymore. And your, and your marriage will become less enmeshed. And healing will begin to work. This is what uh, marriage counselors mean when they say that every couple, every, within a relationship, couples need to be, be allowed, people need to be allowed to come and go without negative consequence, meaning they, they're not so enmeshed with the other person. They can be themselves, they can have hobbies, they can uh, be an individual. Why? Because there's not, a king, there's not a kingdom with that spouse. There's freedom, there's breathing room. Uh, you know, and the, the more you're like this with your kids or your spouse, the more no air can get in, the fire can't go. You take it apart to get, uh, all together, that's not, you can't do that extreme either. There needs to be, like, you know, think of building a fire. You need to put, you need to put space between the logs so air can happen and fire can come out. That is basically saying, Jesus, you are the, you are the king. Doesn't mean I do away with my spouse and stop loving them, no. But it doesn't mean that I do everything they say and I'm, I'm here to, to, you know, worship them. No. I'm not responsible. Um, you're not responsible for your spouse's happiness. Jesus is. He's the king. 
And they're not responsible for your happiness, for your fulfillment. If you're expecting that or thinking that, you have crowned your spouse with a, throne, with a crown that they cannot wear. And they will, your, your relationship will eat you alive. Your career will eat you alive. Your children, you'll smother them. If you, if you love your children, this is something that I struggle with. If you love your children more than God, you'll smother the crap out of them. I know, Dor, I know. That's why, that's why Jesus is demanding. I need to tell you the why. It's not that he comes in and just says, follow me and I'm the king, like he's some narcissist. No, no, no. He's saying, I need to be the king of your life or nothing's going to work out for you. You're going to keep derailing and unraveling. You're going to keep being twisted and twerked. It's, it's not going to work. Only when I am the king of your heart will your marriage begin to heal. Will your, will your career be just a career and, you can, and your work-life balance will begin to work itself out again. You'll be able to say no. You'll be able to let some balls drop and it'll be okay. Here's the litmus test. What is it? And you, this is a private litmus test. You can, what is that thing or that person in your life that if you imagine them being taken from you or it being taken from you, you say, not that. You immediately go, no, 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 not that. What is that? That's a good place to start. I, I was dealing with a, a, it's a long, sick, horrible story, but I'll tell you the, the short, the, the cliff notes. Uh, a, a leader in my youth group began having a sexual relationship with one of the kids in my youth group. And I was trying to get them to not do that anymore, obviously. And I'd removed him from leadership, but the relationship still continued. And I'll never forget, I said to him, he couldn't bear the idea of God saying that this, she wasn't the one for him. And so I had to back off from that a little bit, and I had to take it at another angle. And I said, I said I'm not saying that she's not the one for you. Maybe she is. But I'm saying, if God asked you, if, if, let's just, let's just start with that. If God asked you to give her up, would you do it? And he, it was right from his gut, from his, rea his reaction. He, he goes, no, no, I couldn't. And I said, and that's the problem. That's the problem. It's a heart thing, see. I'm not here to say whether you should take this job or quit this job. I'm not here to say whether you should do this or not. Okay, wear a mask or not wear a mask. Whatever you want to do, whatever decision it is, I'm more interested in what's driving your decisions. What if God asked you to do it? What if it's in the Bible? Oh, I couldn't do it. Even if the Bible, I couldn't do it. Okay, that's the problem. That's the problem. And Jesus shows up. He's demanding. He says, follow me. I'm the king. I'm the king. Leave your father and your mother. Oh, those are good things. Zebedee is a good guy. Careers are good. Not, there's nothing morally wrong with being a fisherman. But they had to get their priorities straight. Follow me. And to that degree, you will be a whole and healthy person and things will begin to heal. And um, you'll also be doing spiritual warfare. That is spiritual warfare. Repentance, giving more and more ground to Jesus, aligning your loves right according to the Bible gives the devil less and less and less and less of a foothold in your life, your marriage, your career, and society. Boom. Okay, fifth, we're cooking along. Fourth, he's a leader. This will be brief. In each case of calling here, Simon, Andrew, James, John, Jesus characterizes the life that he wants them to live by saying the term, follow me, follow me. Um, this, I just want you to know, as a leader, this is an invitation for intimacy, in other words, Jesus is not saying, hey, I'm teaching a class down at the community college every Wednesday, 5 o'clock. I'll give you a free ticket. Come and check it out. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, follow me. This is really difficult for us to understand in our culture, really hard, because we, we live in a culture of, of uh, little, little snippets with people, right? But it'd be like this. It'd be if I said, hey, everybody, Follow me. In other words, we're all going to be, I want you to be around me when I wake up. I want you to see the way I discipline my kids. I want you to see me at my best. I want you to see me at my worst. There's no 
privacy here. I want you to see how I deal with uh, society. I want to see, I want you to see my business practices. I want you to see how I fill out my taxes. I want you to see, I want you to watch me and I'm giving you all, I'm giving you a full pass access into every part of my life. That's what Jesus is saying. And that's the way the, um, the religious schooling system worked in Jesus' day. Pharisees and rabbis would go around to their students that were on waiting lists to talk to some like um, Gamaliel that, that Paul the Apostle studied under. There's a waiting list and you had um, some people's parents bought their kids in for this relationship with Gamaliel in this case or another rabbi where they would, and the way a rabbi would choose a student off the waiting list, they would come to them and say, follow me. In other words, you, you could show up to his teachings you could run into him at the store. But there was another invitation that they were really waiting for, and that was, follow me. Come home, come to my house. See how I deal with my kids. See how I, that was the invitation. Jesus walks up to these guys. You understand what he's saying? He's saying, you get all access to me. You can ask me questions. You imagine that invitation. Ask me questions, I'll explain them to you. Later in the book, especially in Matthew 13, Jesus gives these, parable, uh, these parables to the masses, but he pulls the disciples aside and they say, what did that mean? And he tells them. He tells them. Why? Because they had that pass. Follow me. I'll tell you what it means. See? It's an invitation for intimacy as a leader, for one thing. And here's, here is what makes us Christians versus just religious people. Christians have intimate access to the creator of the universe. Christians are following and getting to know Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? In other words, as great as devotions are and reading is and books are and all of those types of things, it's great. But if that's as far as it goes, you're not a disciple of Jesus. He's inviting you to follow him to know him, to talk with him, to process your life through him, to see his life, to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ. We, we ask Noble that all the time. Do you know him? He knows a lot about him, but do you know him, son? Do you know him? We are all, if you're a follower of Jesus, we're all getting to know him, right? And we might all be on different kind of, places in that journey some of us have different angles and we bring our own perspectives which are really super helpful but we're all on this journey to know Jesus as our king and that's leadership that is leadership man I'll tell you what I'll be straight I you know, when a leader, put yourself in a leader's position. A lead, if, I was, if someone were to come to me and say, Mike, you want to be a leader, here's what it takes. You give people all access passes into your life. I don't have the character for you to see some of the things that, are, that go on in my life, the things that I struggle with. That scares the living poo out of me. In other words, leadership, I have to say it, leadership requires character. Not a celebrity type of an idea where if someone has the gifts and the abilities and the talent, they can be a leader. But someone needs the character of honesty, transparency, not perfection. No. Thank the living God for that. But someone who is, someone who is living life honestly before God with all the goods and bads and the ups and downs. That is... That is who we are. We're following Jesus. Jesus, he, all access. And how can we reconcile with that unless we're not doing that ourselves? We need access to each other so we can learn from each other. But he's also the great follower. Jesus is following the plan of his father. He's leading them on this great adventure that his father has planned out for them. And he's, here's the thing. Where is Jesus' path going to lead him? This is what I really want to hone in on. Where is Jesus' path going to lead him? Anyone? To the cross. A dark place. 
A dark, dark, dark place. Again, here's where I need to be honest with you. Here's where I need to flesh this out with you a little bit. The cross was not just a place that Jesus went so that we don't have to go there. there is, that is partially true. He was judged on the cross so that we never have to be judged. He was, our sins were punished in him so that we won't be punished. And yet, it also, he lived, the, he lived a life that in us following him, we will have to live too. In other words, your path at times will take you into some dark places. A great place for this is George McDonald's book um, about this little girl in this village surrounded by hills of goblins. And every, um, every night, her fairy godmother would, end up, would, would show up in the, in the attic, somewhere upstairs. Sometimes she'd be there, sometimes she wouldn't. And one point, this little girl says to her, her fairy godmother says, follow me. Here, I'm going to give you this ring, and I'm going to attach this ring a, a thread, but it's a magic invisible thread. And whenever you need help, you just put the ring under your pillow and start following the thread to where I'm at. But one night, the little girl's sleeping, and goblins had gotten into her house. And she's scared, and goblins are coming. And so she does what she pulls off her ring and she puts the string on there and puts it under the pillow. And she finds it, it's a magic string. It's so thin you can't see it, you can just feel it. And she starts following it, following it. And to her dismay, it doesn't lead her to some hiding place where she can get away from the goblins. It leads her downstairs towards the noise of the goblins. <laughs> She's like, this can't be right. So she questions it and she begins to go back, but the thread only goes forward. It doesn't go back. It's magic. So she follows it. And she gets beyond the goblins, and to her dismay, it doesn't lead her away from them. It leads them towards the mountains, and then it leads her into the cave of the goblins. And then it leads her into the darkest part of the cave and into a wall, and she begins scraping the wall and taking the, the, the uh, uh, boulders out, and there's a, there's a child back there that the goblins had captured, and she gets to rescue this kid. And he goes, okay, let's, that's so great that you're here. How do we get out of here? She goes, well, we're going to follow my thread. And the thread leads them further into the thing. And he goes, that can't be right. That's the way out. And she goes, look, the thread got me this far. You wouldn't be saved if it wasn't for my thread. Let's keep trusting it now. And I just, that comes to my mind when, it, when, when Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. Because we think, oh, this will be fun. This will be just unicorns and, and, and you know, cotton candy. This will be fantastic. And yet we go into some darker places. Why? And we shouldn't be surprised. Who, who is our king? He, he followed his God to the cross. The darkest place in the cosmos. <laughs> the cross. And it saved us. It saved us. He followed that thread to the cross and we, there we were and we were saved. He wouldn't have done it. He, we would not be saved if Jesus had not followed that thread to the cross. And now he says, follow me. If anyone wants to follow me, let him what? Take up their cross every day. In other words, this is life, guys, and follow me. Don't be surprised when your life leads you into some dark places as you're following Jesus. Don't let the culture say, well, this can't be right, because if I'm following Jesus, things should be going well. Don't, <laughs> that's, that's not, that, feel, that feels intuitive, but it's, it's not right. Finally, He's tender and compassionate. We did it. Point six. We made it through. He's tender and compassionate. Look at this. And immediately he left the synagogue and he entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately they told him about her and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve them. Um, I'll just... The reason I put this in here because one commentator called this the unnecessary tenderness of Jesus. I think this is so sweet. He could have just with his power said you know, from the other room, hey, my mother-in-law's sick. No, she's not. But he, no, he went in there. He tenderly picked her up. See, and this is what gives balance to Jesus. He's authoritative. He's demanding. He's a leader that knows where he's going. He's going to lead us into darkness and suffering and all these things. And yet, he's also tender and compassionate, patient. 
you know, Jesus can just say, oh, you're healed, or just get over it and follow me. But instead, we see over and over again, he touches the leper. Remember that story? It's one of the most... That story makes me want to sign up to follow him all over again. Why? Because he touched somebody untouchable. He could have, with a mask on and six feet distance, he could have just said, you're healed. Go about your business. But Jesus went in to an infected person and, and touched them and said, I'm willing, be healed. That's the stuff about Jesus that gets your heart. He puts his hand on the deaf mute's mouth and ears and he sighs. Remember that? Those things are in the book of Mark to make you know Jesus. Can you imagine if the gospels were just like Jesus walked around and just said, boom, boom, you get up, wham, bluge. It'd be impressive, but we wouldn't want to, we, he wouldn't have our hearts. Here's this God who holds a head and says, you're healed. I'm willing. Be healed. He takes her by the hand. He has the power. He doesn't, have to. he doesn't have to. It's unnecessary tenderness and compassion. And I think to myself, when I know that part, I think, I will follow you. I follow you into the darkest hole. That's what made me follow Jesus. I'll follow you anywhere. When you know him, have you ever had that experience with someone else? You've gotten to know someone and you just think, okay, I'm sold. I'll follow you wherever. You're great. You're awesome. Think about that except on steroids with Jesus. He captures our hearts every time. Okay. This morning, will you follow him again? Will you keep following that thread? Will you trust his tenderness and compassion for you again? Even into some dark, confusing, contradictory, scary places? That's what this table represents. It's a, it's a time for wherever you're at on that spectrum to re-up every Sunday to say, okay, I love him so much. I don't get it. I don't understand a lot of things. I'm in a lot of pain. I suffer. But I love him so much and he's the purest thing I've ever known in this world and I probably ever will know. He is the king of my heart and I trust you again. Here I come.